It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Shocked at the anti-Semitism on college campuses? We shouldn't be. This has been a long time coming for America. Two, now 75% of the Republican primary is MAGA. Three, hire Johnny Cochran. Better yet, find Joe Jamail. Sue, launch a congressional investigation. If you have to, get on a war posture. And bring back the Houston Oilers. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. I'm basically a sports ninja, a sports Navy SEAL operating a high level of competency despite sleep deprivation. With the Texas Rangers in the World Series, I took your advice. I was always going to listen. I stayed up for this once-in-a-lifetime event, despite having to set my alarm for 4 a.m. Eastern Time. That meant on Friday night, I stayed up until 12.45 and got up again at four. And that meant on Saturday night that I went to bed roughly at 11:30 and got up again at 4. I am sleep deprived. I'm pretty pleased. But when you combine it with my trip back to Dallas, I might just be a sports stoic, capable of enduring severe pain but persevering to stay with my team. Man, I'm going to tell you something. I can't go as far as to say it's miserable, but it's more like getting paper cuts for three hours to try to stream a football game on YouTube TV while flying through a metal canister 30,000 feet in the air. I appreciate where we have arrived at technology, that I'm sitting in a relatively comfortable seat, streaming the internet screaming across the sky to get me home in time for family dinner. But the spoiled children of progress that we are, the spoiled child of progress that I am, when I try to buy the internet for $19 American, that's highway robbery, and stream a game on YouTube TV, I uh, at one point on Sunday measured it. I think I was getting basically like, 10, 15 seconds of action with three to five second pauses with the old school buffer wheel going around. And I stuck through it, baby. I mean, I was a warrior. I didn't even complain. I didn't toss my hands around, didn't let out any big size. I just dug deep. And I enjoyed that Cowboy game. Had they been losing, it had been a tight game. I can't promise that the attitude would have been the same. But it was nice. I even went for a little extra cherry on top, did some red zone at the end of the game, continuing to subject myself to paper cuts. So when you combine the paper cuts of bad internet connection with the sleep deprivation of the World Series, I'm not saying, I'm just saying I could be the sports Navy SEAL. Story number one. 
surprised at the anti-Semitism on American college campuses? We should not be. We should not be. This has been a long time coming in America. There are disturbing images of not just anti-Semitism, but images reminiscent of European pogroms taking place across the world. Now that we have entered the at least preliminary stages of a ground invasion in Israel, in Dagestan, Russia, extremely disturbing scene where the anticipated arrival of a flight from Tel Aviv, I guess, presumed to be full of Jews, was met with Russian Dagestani riots, a mob that infiltrated the airport, looking to, and you quote, if you trust the translations in the videos, quote, kill Jews. I'm talking about it, what appears to be hundreds of people in the airport, on the runway, on the tarmac, looking in the plane to see if they can find Jews. Anti-Semitism is undoubtedly on the rise across the globe. And anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head on American college campuses. London, we saw images of thousands waving pro-Palestinian flags. Grand Central Station in New York City taken over for a pro-Palestinian rally. Brooklyn, New York, similar scenes. Tulane, which I did not know, was a 44% Jewish student body. The scene of a fight between pro-Palestinian protesters and Jewish students. And similar scenes have taken place across college campuses in America. Let's start with this. I'm hesitant to declare anything carte blanche, anything without firsthand evidence, anything accepted as fact as on its face anti-Semitic. It's part of my instinct that pushes me away from knee-jerk reactions to racism. Look, that word, that that concept of racism has been pulled and stretched and puffed apart over the past five to ten years in America beyond all semblance of meaning. When I read a story, and I often will, by somebody like NBC News, where the B in black is capitalized, and there's a declarative in the opening paragraph of an incident described as racist. I do not, I do not accept it as face value. On one hand, because racism is, if not completely, overwhelmingly subjective. What is, what is not racist? What are the facts that are never shared that lead us to this conclusion of racism? And that's not to say there aren't incidences of racism. That something can't be racist, quite clearly. And I think we could all find incidences or facts or evidence or moments where the overwhelming, if not 100% consensus, is racist. But the way that word has been tortured, our collective understanding of racism has been lost. It's a knife whose edge is dulled. It's a... Halloween trick that's no longer scary because it's been overplayed. And with that same instinct, I'm hesitant to accept any declarative, any statement of fact that something is anti-Semitic. And that happens all the time. It happens as well on news agencies, including my own, where it is as a statement of fact instead of opinion that something 
is anti-Semitic. And again, this is something that is at least overwhelmingly subjective, that belongs in the realm of opinion-based columns and not in the first lead of paragraphs of fact-based news articles. But again, that's not to say there isn't such a thing as anti-Semitism. But right now, the kind of evidence being used when you are forwarded the idea of a fact-based or objective or overwhelming consensus of anti-Semitism are things like any opposition to Israel is anti-Semitic. Any opposition to Zionism is anti-Semitic. And that type of trick, just like the tool of accusations of racism is designed to shut down conversations and critical thinking faculties, not to shine light and understanding on a situation. I say that because when I come into this conversation, I want you to know I never use that, nor do I accept that terminology literally, liberally. But there are things that I think we can agree are at least overwhelmingly, if not consensus, if not 100%, if not declarative, if not statements of fact, meet our common understanding of something that is anti-Semitic. If you're waving the flag of Hamas, I think it's fair to say that that is anti-Semitic. The charter of Hamas calling for the eradication of Jews. If you are following the week of a horrific terror attack launching on the streets of America and across the globe, protest in support of Palestine when the only thing possibly to be celebrating at that moment was the slaughter of 1,400 Jews, I think it's fair to say that is anti-Semitic. If you're flying that Palestinian flag in that same time frame, I think it is fair to say that's anti-Semitic. That's not to say after the war rages on and there's a bombing strip, a bomb through the strip of Gaza, that flying that flag remains anti-Semitic. But everything in life is about timing and context and understanding. And if you're doing it after, in the moments directly preceding a terror attack, I think it's fair to say that's anti-Semitic. If you're tearing down kidnap posters across the streets of New York City, which, by the way, I was in New York this past weekend. They're up all over the Upper West Side. They're in Brooklyn. They're in all sorts of places. And shocking the number of videos that we're seeing of people tearing down these posters. Why? There are street lamps with these posters now with plastic transparent tape to prevent people like a Broadway producer who went around with sets of scissors tearing down the posters of the missing. Why? I think if you're doing that, what point are you making other than you are anti-Semitic? If you refuse to condemn the terror attacks, like several members of Congress, when confronted directly by a reporter, pretty easy question to answer. Do you condemn the terror attacks in southern Israel by Hamas? If you refuse to offer that condemnation, I think it's fair to say you're anti-Semitic. But if you're having an argument over the future or the past, 
and the politics of the Levant. It is not fair to say that everything, every bit of understanding, every bit of history, every bit of disagreement, every bit of debate is anti-Semitic. We have to search for accuracy and truth. I tell you all of that to say I'm not interested in a discussion or a conversation or a segment on the Will Cain show wherein all we do is sit here and cast broad aspersions and stones that college kids have all of a sudden become anti-Semitic. But we can look with objectivity at some of what I just laid out and stand there mouth agape at the state of college campuses in America. Cooper Union, Jewish students driven into, I cannot remember if it was the school library or the cafeteria, with students on the other end of those locked doors chanting and threatening those Jewish students inside of Cooper Union. Anti-Semitic. Rallies and protests and, and, and violence and overwhelming support for Palestine in the wake of that terror attack that killed 1,400 has caused many a billionaire in America, many Jewish billionaires, like the Wexler family, not for nothing, the primary family. I feel like it goes, it should go mentioned every time this family is mentioned, but the Wexler family, the primary supporter of Jeffrey Epstein, but the Wexler family, Leon Cooperman, Bill Ackman. To say they're going to stop donating their money to college campuses in the wake of what they see as shocking, eye-opening, mouth-agape anti-Semitism. But what I would say is while they stand here shocked today, they don't have a right to their surprise. This has been a long time coming. We should have seen, I think many people that listen here would already know that we've been leading up to this overwhelmingly obvious moment for decades in America. There is a direct line from Marxism to Black Lives Matter to Hamas. And if you're only feeding on the surface of the news cycle, never understanding the currents that run down deep, you'll never understand why it is that one would float with the current thing or if one would continue to be surprised by the state of our country. But if you dig deep, if you put, as we have encouraged, that rudder down into the waters and understand not conspiratorial connections, but fact-based history, you would know this was a long time coming in America. The opposition to Israel on American college campuses has a lot to do with the movement of anti-colonization. That's the narrative bought by American students. Why? It's part and parcel with the pandemic of victim mentality in America. It is the framework of what we have discussed. It is the framework of oppressor and oppressed, which is a framework that rests on the foundation of Marxism. Let me explain that with a bit more detail. In the past several weeks, we've talked a lot here on the Will Kane podcast about the fundamental survival tool of human nature, and that is tribalism. For most of human history, tribalism was defined by commonalities in race or commonalities in religion or commonalities in geography. A relatively recent experiment in humanity is the nation state, asking people to set aside those more obvious connections of commonality, those more obvious tribes for Concepts that are more abstract, ideas, buy into my values, 
Sign up for my nation state. Communism, for what it's worth, was one of these attempts to get people to identify with an idea, to redefine their concept of tribe. A nation state is not simply the rallying around of a specific set of ideas, but it also needs a outsider. It needs an other. Any individual, any group of people often have trouble understanding what it is that makes them them without seeing somebody that they are not. It's hard to understand we until we understand the other. And communism look to sell the idea within their nation-state projects, most notably the Soviet Union, on buying into the idea of class, and the other being the elite, the bourgeois, the aristocrat. Communism asked you to see the other as the wealthy, as the capitalist, and ask the workers of the world to unite. But communism is an idea, or as a political project rested on the ideology of Marxism. And Marxism has been baked into the American, not just collegiate and university system, but at lower levels of education through American teachers' colleges, been part of our educational mindset in America for going on almost 100 years. It's been inculcated in universities. It's been taught to teachers and it's not as though every teacher that your son or daughter has in eighth grade understands on the most overt and conscious level that they're buying into communism it is more a subconscious play on the mentality of victimhood it is the framework of oppressor and oppressed it's the world of the underdog it's taking up for the little guy it plays upon instincts and by the way it plays upon kernels of truth in the nature of humanity that there are people that are oppressed that there is victimhood that there is tragedy but it asks you to accept those kernels of truth and see them as the microscope through which to see humanity and the world and to begin to define everything our relationships one another our societies our tribes as oppressor and oppress now While it was first brought in 170 years ago into the American education system through the first iteration of communism, of Marxism, through the divide of class, that has evolved over time. It's evolved into race. In the 1960s, race began to be the big civil societal divide movement in America. And with Black nationalist movements like the Black Panthers taking on overtly Marxist ideologies and positions. And those were not simply the buying in of an idea sold to them through the education system. These were these were movements funded by communist parties backed directly. We can draw direct lines to the Soviet Union. Because of that, we don't get to be shocked or surprised today when the Black Lives Matter chapter of Chicago in the wake of a terror attack, literally within the 48 hours following a terror attack, puts out a poster, a tweet, an Instagram post of a paraglider and says, we stand with Palestine. It sounds like you stand with paragliders of Hamas who conduct terror and kill 1,400 Jews. 
It moves on from race, by the way. It always adopts the current thing. This framework of oppressor and oppressed moves into the gay movement in the United States of America. It's moved on now to the trans movement. It's always in search of a victim. And again, some of it is true. It finds in cases accuracy. It finds righteous. It finds truthful victims. But again, it asks you to take those kernels of truth and use them as the microscope into seeing the broader project that is America. Because the truth, that kernel of truth, is not the point. The point is the objective. And whether or not you define it on class or race or trans, the point is to divide and separate. It was not simply an ideological movement of communism and Marxism, but a nation-state project of the Soviet enterprise to divide and separate this tribe. Why? Because this tribe had a different set of values. This tribe didn't rally itself around the nation-state abstractions of communism and Marxism. This tribe rallied itself around the nation-state values enshrined in the United States Constitution, developed over thousands of years through Greek and Roman thought, surviving through the Western Enlightenment, tried and true, and in my humble estimation, the greatest consecration of secular values in the history of man. But the project was to divide and conquer. It's a project today that remains. It's a project that's been taken up by the Chinese Communist Party. Let me give you an example. Who runs TikTok? The Chinese Communist Party. What's happening on TikTok? Let me give you an example of the search results when you hashtag a certain different set of positions on TikTok. If you search Stand with Palestine, you'll get 3.4 billion views on that return. If you search hashtag Stand with Palestine with the Palestinian flag, you get 64.8 million. If you search Stand with Palestine, drop the E, add the flag, and add a rose, you get 266.8 million views. You can keep going. Hashtag Stand with Palestine, drop the E, add the flag, 50.8 million views. That's the kind of boost. That's the kind of exposure to that side of the story you would get on TikTok. But if you search hashtag stand with Israel, you get 304 million views. Again, 304 million versus 3.4 billion. If you search stand with Israel, with the Star of David and the Israeli flag, you get 16 million views. If you search Stand with Israel, underscore between each of the words, you get 31 million views. If you search Stand with Israel with the Israeli flag, you get 3.2 million views. 3.2 million views, the lowest. Going down four separate searches I gave you with Stand with Palestine was 51 million views. 50.8 million views. That's the position today of the Marxist communist project that lives in its fullest form, the Chinese Communist Party, deploying divide and conquer. And I'm here to tell you, it is not great leaps to to attempt to divide and conquer us based upon 
class, then race, then gay, then trans, then Islamist, then Hamas. Why? Because the consistent thread, the consistent thread of this ideology that, again, has been taught, that is baked in, that is inculcated on the American college campus is inherently anti-colonialist and anti-Western. It is also anti-white. So, what does Israel represent? Why would this movement that has left so many billionaires and so many on the left and so many progressives shocked at the anti-Semitism on college campuses be anti-Israel? It's not complicated. Israel is a colonialist project in the Middle East. We've gone through the history together, you and I together. I don't have to rehash it here. Yes, there have been Jews in the Middle East for thousands of years. They were largely run out of the Middle East some 2,000-odd years ago. A colonialist project named Zionism launched in the 1880s looking for a safe home for Jews. When you see the type of videos taking place in Dagestan, Russia, you're seeing what took place across centuries in Europe at the hands of Christians. That inspired the movement we know today as Zionism which was a colonial project, known and self-defined. It's part of the history. And this ideology is inherently colonial. Why is it inherently anti-colonial, the university movement? Because, Because colonialism was largely, largely, not exclusively, but largely a project of the West. And this divide and conquer, again, straight through line from the Soviet Union Communism, the Chinese Communist Party, American college campuses, is anti-Western, a rejection of the values that bind together this tribe, the United States of America. Why else are these college students anti-Israel? They've bought into the decolonization narrative. They assign colonization to Westernism. They assign Westernism to whiteness. This is all out there for us to read. And for us to connect. And Jews are whiter than Arabs. So in every step of the way, the anti-colonialist decolonization, Black Lives Matter, Marxist ideology asks you to reject the whiter, the Western value, colonization project. That project is the project of the oppressor. And I told you, And every step of the way, you will find your kernels of truth. Of course, are there gay people that have been victimized in the United States of America? Absolutely. Are there trans people who have been victimized? Yes, absolutely. Are there there Muslims who've suffered under the Patriot Act? Yes, absolutely. But this movement doesn't care about those kernels of truth. It used those kernels of truth. And pumps them full of steroids, like the stretched and tortured meaning and usage of the word racist, to ask you to see the world, ask your children to see the world through that framework, through that lens. Ask your children to think of themselves as the champion of the oppressed. And in so doing, reject the values of Westernism. Reject The project that is the foundation of this tribe. And these are no small values to reject. Again, 
in my mind, the greatest secular consecration of values in the history of man asks you to reject them because on the other end, they want to divide and conquer and they play upon our naivety. They play upon our children's lack of identity. They play upon our own lack of understanding. They play upon our instinct to move away from tradition in the name of progress. They play upon our differences to get us to reject our similarities, our unique and unifying values. These billionaires should have seen this attack on the tribe of America, the values that unify America decades ago. I understand that now it's gorily obvious. I understand that today... It's shocking. It's eye-opening. It's mouth agape. But it's been a long time coming. And these billionaires should have made their move when these universities began to tear down this tribe, the tribe of America. Because by tearing down this tribe, you laid the groundwork not just to one day tear down Israel. You You laid the groundwork To create the only true existential threat to America. We will never be invaded with two gigantic oceans, not by a military, with two gigantic oceans on either side. We will only existentially cease to exist internally if someone can divide and conquer and get us to reject through our children the values that made us unique in human history. The values that made us America. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two. 75% of the Republican primary... MAGA. Mike Pence, former vice president under Donald Trump, has dropped out of the race for president. He announced that this past weekend. He was running out of money. He wasn't polling well. And with that, he really left four main candidates for president. It's still more people officially in the race, but you're down to essentially four main candidates for president. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley. Even at that, I'm probably offering too much generosity in that we are truthfully down to one candidate as the nominee for Republican for presidency in 2024, Donald Trump. But what's interesting if you look at that is there's only one candidate among those leading four that isn't, that hasn't taken up the movement that is Make America Great Again, and that is Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has said some terrifying things, in my estimation, when it comes to American foreign policy. Nikki Haley is not, she is, seems to be taking the mantle of the modern-day Lindsey Graham. She hasn't found a war yet. She isn't ready to embrace. Ukraine, all in. Israel, the 51st state. An attack on Israel is an attack on America. Not only that, she wants to bomb the hell out of Gaza, and then... Import all the refugees that we would create 
in Gaza. She's ready to fight Iran. She's ready to war. It's the worst of all worlds. Go create wars you cannot win. Never ask yourself or answer to your constituency whether or not it serves America first. And then import the refugees of your bombs. This is such a recipe for disaster. Take the American taxpayer dollar. Ship it to the military-industrial complex. Create weapons of war. Drop them on foreign nations. Provoke potential war that would ask for the sacrifice of our children. Send our children back home to a country whose economy is devastated, fighting for a job where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of refugees have been brought in to compete for a declining pool of skilled labor. Then when those sons of ours, perhaps injured, if still alive from your war, want to go try to get those jobs, they will sit before an HR department in corporate America who sits there and uses the same exact mentality that Nikki Haley did when she immediately believed Bubba Wallace in his infamous noose hoax with NASCAR to ensure that whoever gets the job will only be the people not most qualified, but that most check the boxes of your DEI initiatives used to absolve ourselves of the guilt for the situations that you have created across the globe. Nikki Haley would ensure that our children are jobless, injured, but oh, there's some forever war far across the globe that I assure you we do not win. In my mind, the absolute worst of all worlds. On the plus side, 75% of that electorate. The other three candidates, Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump, have bought into the movement that I think is the one that re- attaches us. I truly do. I truly do. Not just because of populism, not just because of popularity, but the only one that ever truly talks about what are the values of America first. Will Joe Biden be the nominee for the Democrats? That's looking less and less of a certainty. Minnesota congressman worth $64 million has said he's going to run. He's going to put his name on the ballot in New Hampshire. And I, for one, am starting to wonder, or starting to realize, I, I don't know. I'm, I go back and forth on this. Like, oh, they can run John Fetterman. They can run Dianne Feinstein. They can run a potato. But you got to be able to win with that potato. And I'm not sure you can run with the potato that is Joe Biden. I don't know which way we're going, but I will tell you this, and the betting markets are already reflecting it. Greater chance now, head-to-head for him, for Donald Trump. An even better chance for Make America Great Again. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number three. Notes from the world of sports. I don't feel confident. I stayed up. I watched every inning of the World Series. Friday night was incredible. I'm so glad I deprived myself of sleep. I'm so glad I only got three and a half hours. That comeback, which was a game full of pessimism, with Corey Seager hitting a two-run home run in the ninth, was glorious. Sitting in a hotel room in New York City by myself, it was only uh, only exceeded by Adolis Garcia in the left, in the 11th, with a game-winning home run. Glory. So glad I stayed up. Unfortunately, Saturday night was deflating. Saturday night, the Rangers were just outplayed. The Diamondbacks are good. 
They play baseball. And I know you've heard it if you watch the games. They steal bases. They run. They're pesky. They're a problem. And my producers, James Laverty and Patrick Hatton, have spent the entirety of the last two weeks talking about the how undeserved it is for Arizona to be in the World Series. Nonsense. I'll tell you this. The Houston Astros made me nervous, primarily because of Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez. But as a fan of the Texas Rangers, having played the 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 Tampa Bay Rays, the Baltimore Orioles, the Houston Astros, and the Arizona Diamondbacks, I don't think I've ever felt as pessimistic as I do today tied one-to-one. These guys play baseball. Hey, speaking of Houston, let's uh, bring back the ghost of Joe Jamail, Johnny Cochran. Let's launch the lawsuits. This weekend in the NFL... The Tennessee Titans took on the Atlanta Falcons, but the Titans dressed up in their old Houston Oilers uniforms. Love you blue. The baby blue and red with the oiled Eric on the helmet. They looked awesome. And they won, by the way, as the Oilers. They looked incredible. And they are that name, Houston Oilers, that look, Earl Campbell, Warren Moon, that colorway, that is maybe the best all-time look in the NFL. Now, I like retro everything. You know that. Right now, the last couple of days, I have been lost in an Instagram rabbit hole of 1990s Toyota Land Cruisers, 1970s GMC Jimmys and uh, Chevy K5 Blazers, and 1980s Blazers and Jimmys. I love square, boxy, and all those. Even the 90s Land Cruiser, square, boxy. I like old. I don't care about new. I don't like new cars. I don't like, honestly, I kind of don't even like new homes. I like old. And so I like the old uniform of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Give me the creamsicle. I like the old uniform. Of the New England Patriots. Give me Pat Patriot. I like the old uniform of the Denver Broncos, not the USFL 1990s look they have. I like old uniforms that haven't changed like Penn State. I like old uniforms like the Cleveland Browns. And I love the old uniforms of the Houston Oilers. They're iconic. If not the best, they are top tier with those others that I've just laid out, along with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And a few other franchises. I think the Dallas Cowboys. Their uniform wonderfully makes no sense. None of the blue matches. Not the blue in the star to the blue on the jersey. To the blue on the numbers when they're wearing their whites. To whatever color that is. when they. I wish they'd go back to that seafoam green pants. Because I like the old. But there is possibly nothing better than the old Houston Oilers. The Tennessee Titans took it with them basically have put it in the closet and let it collect dust as they adopted the monoculture generic titans. What are they, from Athens? Is it a Greek team? Cleveland Guardians, Tennessee Titans, monoculture. Houston Oilers can only really exist in Houston. And they're better than the, I don't hate it, but I don't love it, Houston Texans. By the way, Houston, I didn't know you were so upset that we're the Texas Rangers. I realized that after the ALCS. 
Houston's very upset it's not the Dallas Rangers or the DFW Rangers or the Arlington Rangers. Here's the thing, Houston. You're showing insecurities on this one. Yeah, okay, I get it. You don't like that the Rangers, by name, become the baseball team of the state. But your knowledge of Texas history, which I hope is still being taught in schools, should help you understand the Texas Rangers were key to taming the West. When they sent, what was it, John David Coffey and these guys out they, to fight the Comanches, they weren't the Arlington Rangers. They were the Texas Rangers. How about a little deference to history? I'm giving you your due here. I'm ready to launch the lawsuits to get back Love You Blue. You need to get away from the red, white, and blue of the Houston Texans. Go back to the baby blue and red of the Houston Oilers. And I know that the Titans ownership has it. That's why we got to get the best legal teams. We got to launch the lawsuits. We got to get this back. Speaking of the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys, beautiful weekend, stomping the Rams. The Cowboys are either stinky or incredible. We got the incredible version of the Cowboys this weekend. Dak Prescott was almost perfect. And the Cowboys were absolutely beautiful. One last note on sports. Friend and colleague Clay Travis over at Outkick has launched a bet, a million dollars. He got in a Twitter fight with a player in the WNBA. He said that a team of his choosing, state high school champion, varsity boys team, could beat a WNBA team. I don't know if he said a WNBA all-star team. And that really upset an WNBA player who offered no argument but simply called him a dumbass. We do know that the FC Dallas 15-year-old boys, so U16, or was it U15, boys, academy, granted, academy, beat the U.S. women's national team in soccer. Soccer, basketball, not exactly the same. But we do know as well that 19-year-olds, so a year removed from high school, are getting drafted, playing well, Derek Lively, Victor Wimbanyaya. Did I say that right? He's still young enough, the Spurs stud, seven foot six. Athletic, slashing, big. I don't think I have to... It took me a good year before I got Giannis Antetokounmpo. And I am perfect at that one now. I just said Giannis, even when I had a daily radio show. But now I got it, baby. Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo. Whatevs. I don't yet have Victor Wimbanyaya. Wimbanyaya. Anyway, a team full of Wimbanyayas. And Derek Lively's and others, a year removed from high school, just back them up a year. Yeah, I'm going to go with Clay on that million-dollar bet. I think they beat the WNBA. That's going to do it for me today here on the Will Kane Podcast. You can let me know what you think. Will Kane Podcast at Fox.com. And I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.